All right, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. Before we get started, we'd like to let you know that the Uncommon Gem podcast is an adult content show, meaning we may go into explicit detail or say some explicit words when talking about today's subjects. We also like to inform you that we're not paid or sponsored by any of the donations or charities in the episode. We simply just are giving it a shout out and hopefully spreading the word on some good causes. Thanks again for tuning in and let's get on with the show. are back thank you so much for listening to the uncommon gem podcast this is episode four quattro there should be amigos brother the fourth amigos brother should be quattro if there is another amigos brother he's out there for sure a little uh, inside baseball for you folks you this episode is literally the first episode after we launch first prior episodes are me just interviewing and getting it ready but this is now we now know you know about the podcast so i just really want to express my amount of gratitude and love Thank you so much for listening. The kind words has been so nice seeing the feedback. It's been reaching out beyond family and friends too, which is really cool. So truly, honestly, thank you so much for everybody tuning in. I'm excited to see where we keep on going. And yeah, we got a bunch of fun interviews lined up, a bunch of uncommon gems we're going to reveal. So thanks. And let's get on with the show. Oh yeah, I totally, you know what? All right. I had to confess I made a mistake, but I forgot that I was going to do a thing where I asked every New Yorker where their favorite pizza spot was. So episode two, we interviewed Liz, and we did not ask her that question on air. That's my bad. But Liz did text me that Prince Street Pizza in Manhattan is the place to get pizza in New York. Today's guest is a truly great person. I'm so excited and so happy he's on the show. I met this person when I was doing improv comedy back in UCB theater. We met in what I think is the personally greatest class I've ever been a part of in the comedy realm. But he's a truly genuine, fun character. He's an actor improviser, writer, comedian, model. This man does so much. And he's so talented in each field. You probably watched him on Hulu during the quarantine there. He was in the movie called The Binge. Yeah, that came out in August. So definitely check that out if you haven't. But uh, I definitely have to recommend also you watch a short he wrote and directed titled Memento Mori. Super funny short. You can go to his website and check it out. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show Howard Hendricks Powell. Oh, wow. I'm so glad to be here, Kevin. Thank you so much. Thanks for all the kind words that you said about me. I assure you I'll disappoint. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that class that we did take, Improv 301 together, Jana Scrabis, right? Shout, Shout out to Jana. That was a really incredible class. There was something, something about the moon and the stars is what an annoying person would say. Uh, <laughs> everything was aligned. I mean, we should definitely mention that. So a lot of people may not know because they not have taken improv classes, but it, there's like a certain awkwardness when you start meeting people that you've never met before. Oh my God, yeah. But in that class in particular, everyone was just clicking left and right. Like I've never seen something like that before. It was cool. I, and I remember walking into the class and being, you know, cause you do, like you said, you have those nerves. You're like, what are these people gonna be like? Personally, <laughs> I'm just gonna keep it real. We're on the uncommon gems. Like yeah. I'm not, I'm not filtering. I think my enjoyment of any improv class is based on how funny I think the other people think I am, right? Mm -hmm. And that was a class where I thought 
everyone in the class was funny. Mm -hmm. Even even if there was people who I was like, oh, you know, they are lacking in the skill of long form comedy. <laughs> Socially, they were funny and whatever they were doing was funny to watch. You know what I'm saying? So <laughs> it's like, it was just a win across the board. I definitely, felt like I could Again, lose. shout out to Jana because she definitely also held down that class. She was such a informative and awesome teacher. Yeah, something, I, I think a lot of it had to do with her. She brought mm. in some energy that just kind of made us all feel safe. Even when she, one day she was out and she had a sub and that guy was really chill. <laughs> <Yeah>. Like, <laughs> it must have been the room. It must have been the room. All right, Howard, we definitely got to talk about you. But so, as I said, you, you have a, you're a man of many hats. You also graduated because you're from Connecticut, correct? I'm from Connecticut. Isn't that a weird place to be <laughs> from? I'd rather be from like Nebraska or something than Connecticut. There's so much weight that goes to Connecticut. You got all the wealth. Apparently, Connecticut has the biggest wealth disparity of all the states. The Jeez. richest rich and the poorest poor. And I have some <laughs> sad news for all the listeners. I'm from the poor side. But all the people I went to college with, most of them, a lot of them were from the rich side. Plenty of them were from the poor side because it was a state school. Shout out to West Cotton. Um, but there was, you know, a few people you'd be like, yeah, let's go to your house. Fuck it. Oh, you live down the street because you go to a state school? Cool. And you'd pull up and you'd be like, oh, fuck, this is like a lake house on a beach. I can't connect with anyone. And then you got to worry about stealing something out of their house just to, you know, make the night worth it. <laughs> True college stories. I, I relate. I relate. <laughs> I promise it's not going to all be bits. I'm just, you're teeing me up. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, let's definitely, so you graduated from Western Connecticut State University. I did. I did. So my college story is actually kind of interesting. So I have extremely supportive parents. They're great people, really cool people. I mean, they're an interracial couple. They're, they're both in their 60s. So they were my age in the 70s. So they really have been around the block. So they get it and they're artsy folks. And they told me, they always were like, pursue your dreams, whatever, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and when I was deciding what I wanted to do with my life, it was between two extremely lucrative career paths. It was either visual art, drawing and, and whatnot, or performance art, theater, acting. For the longest time, my senior year of college, I was like, I'm gonna do visual art. That's what I'm gonna do. I was in a studio art class that was like a, basically a college prep like art class. So they taught you how to put together a portfolio and kind of what would be demanded of you in a college level art class. Ms. Sarasi, great teacher. If you're listening, what the fuck are you listening to this for? <laughs> <laughs> Judgment, but what are you doing? Is it because I shared it? Right on. Thank you for listening. And if you're not listening, then keep keep on keeping on. But great class and surrounded by extremely talented artists. You'd be surprised what like 16 year olds can do with some oil pastel. It'll blow your mind. I thought that's what I wanted to do. And when it came down to it, deciding, okay, I was like, I put together half of my portfolio and I was like, do I really want to send this to schools? The, the question I asked myself was, which do I want to make a hobby? Do I want to make performance a hobby or do I want to make art a hobby? And then the second question I asked myself is, which do I want to make a career? Which could I do if somebody told, put me in a room and was like, I need you to do this. You have no artistic control over it. I need you to hit this mark. What are you going to do? And I felt like with art, that sounded like a punishment where, where with acting or, or theater or something, something, something about it felt like I could do that on command a lot easier. So I chose theater. I had applied to three colleges. 
uh, because misguided. You know, I'll say this. I had a guidance counselor for three years. And then my fourth year, I got a, a new guidance counselor. She's a very lovely woman. Before that, I had a guidance counselor who I'm not going to talk too ill of because I think he might be dead. If you, I think he might be dead. He could be dead. He could be dead for all I know. That's, you know, and, and we obviously didn't connect if I'm unsure over his death. And I remember my freshman or my freshman year of high school, my freshman year of high school, he goes, what do you want to do with your life? I look him in the eye. I say, I want to be a psychologist and I want to go to Yale. That's what I said. And he looked at me and he, he was like, kind of was like, okay. And that was basically the track he set me on for three years. We didn't, you know, connect over anything. But then my senior year, I got this great guidance counselor and she was like, yeah. So that's why I only applied to three schools. I think you should apply to like eight. My my kids are going to apply to eight. They're all going to be Ivy League schools because that fucking guy really put a bad taste in my mouth. Anyways, <laughs> I didn't like him. Might be dead. She was like, well, let's you know get you in line. And she helped me pick my schools. And I applied to St. John's, Pace University, and West Con was my safety. I was like, fuck that school. I'm never going. And so I had got accepted into the two schools and I had just applied like general, I think with like maybe like a communications major or whatever. And I figured once, if I got in, I would be like, okay, let me see what program I wanna to apply to specifically. Cause I was still a little on the fence about stuff. And I was very happy to get into both schools and Westcon, I had an in-person, I had an in-person interview at my school. So I came to my school and I go and I go to the interview. I remember I had failed a math class in high school. Ooh, I don't talk about that often. I failed a math class, uh, very bad at math. We should talk yeah. about that. Improvisers notoriously bad at math. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. We have so much we have to, when you're improvising, you have so much you have to track in your head. So many balls you have up in the air. You literally are counting what scene you're doing. But if you have to put it on paper, it's impossible. And I remember the guy goes, what's going on with this? And I uh, just kind of was like, uh, said something, you know, I'm a smart ass. I said something, you know, quick. And he was like, all right, I'm going to accept you. <laughs> that was how the interview started. What's up with this? All right, I'm going to accept you. And then once I got the financial aid packages, I was like, oh, reality bites. I got to go here. And I went there and it ended up being great because the audition program. So it's like so many stars aligned at once. I am not a musical theater actor. There's a musical theater track at my school, my alma mater. And uh, there's a performance track where you can just do straight acting. And that straight acting, do not have to audition for. Anyone who wants to give it a go can come and do it. The musical theater track is more exclusive. You have to audition for it. And I remember thinking, wow, that's fucking weird. I hate this school. <laughs> but it turns out when I started there, uh, they were opening this new performance studio. It's, it housed the music wing. It housed the art wing. It housed the theater wing. These Broadway caliber theaters that they have somehow weaseled into this school on a hill in Connecticut. Incredible facilities. And my class, my freshman class, opened it. There were seniors who were graduating out of it who got it for like a year and, and whatnot. But I was the first group of people who had it for four years. And it was a truly amazing experience. And I think that it kind of set me on the path for who I was going to be because I kind of felt backfooted. I felt like, oh, I, I'm not uh, where I need to be this place. I'm better than this place. And then over time, I realized it's not about if you're being better than a place or thinking you're better than a place. It's just about the work, wherever you are. If you do the work, you can succeed. That's what I tried to do with Westcon. I tried to make it a place uh, that worked for me. And it ended up being, I think, a great fit. So I went from a place that I really disliked to a place that, uh, I'm really happy to have graduated from.
That's great. I really love that story, man. I feel like so often in life, you hear so many people like had that struggle of finding what they want to do and also finding their hobby. And like you said, like it's that work versus, you know, like hobby. So what do I want to follow in my life? And I'm really glad you shared that story. So many people just seem lost in that certain part of their life. So maybe if you're listening yeah. to it, you know, just know that it's totally fine to try out some things and then you'll find your way so long as it feels right to you. So I want to get into this. So like, obviously, you know, we can do the comedy thing, but you did, like you said, do very many musical theater as well as theater theater. So you've done a lot of more serious plays, a lot of more serious productions. You also were going to tell me I was on your website. You weren't just going to tell me that you were the cat in the hat ever. You weren't going to oh mention my that God, once. I cannot Not even a little bit. <laughs> I cannot believe you just said that. Yeah. So, you know, again, we're on the uncommon gym, so I'm just going to keep it real. So when I started at this school, I was very jaded, you know, I, my peers will attest to it. I grew, men gr can grow, I grew. I remember thinking when I auditioned my freshman year, I remember thinking, I should get the fucking lead role of every single play they have. I don't deserve to be here. I was a real dick in my head. I wasn't saying these things out loud, but that's how I felt. That's how I felt. I was young. I was emboldened. I was, you know, I was brash. I was very personable though, but these are the thoughts I had. And I thought that, oh, if I go into audition, I should be the best person here. If I don't think I deserve to be here, then naturally, if that statement is true, then I should be doing extremely well in these auditions. And honestly, that mindset I abandoned after my freshman year, because obviously I kind of hopefully started becoming a functioning adult. Something about that sort of arrogance, or I don't know if arrogance is the right word to describe it, but that mindset I had allowed me to go into these auditions and have this reckless abandon and make extremely bold choices and take a real command of the room. I remember my freshman year, I wore all black to both of my auditions. I was like, look at me, here I stand, you know, in this white studio, I'm, I'm dressed in all black. For the second semester, I wore all black with a red tie. Very Chris Tucker of me, <laughs> little foreshadow. I just had this, this real bold auditioning thing. My freshman year, I got cast in, in a pretty decent sized role in our Shakespeare play. And then the second semester, they were doing the cat in the hat. And I know myself very well. And I thought to myself, God damn it, I'm, I'm prime contender for the cat in the hat. I'm the cat in the hat of my own life. <laughs> I slink about, I entertain anyone when I can. I, uh, I, I'm very cat in the hat-esque, whimsical, but also, a heart of gold. Uh, <laughs> and I thought that, okay, well, I, I could do this part. So I remember I did this weird ass monologue where I just did as much crazy physicalization as I could. Cause I kind of thought I was like, mm -hmm. all, all, all I need to be, I don't need to understand acting. I don't need to whatever. All I need to be is show them that I, I have command over this six, two body that I uh, am in and can <laughs> use it to, you know, tell this story. And the director of that show actually went on to become a really good friend of mine. We worked together a lot. He, he ran the improv club at my school, which I later ended up taking over. And it was really, it was, it was, he's a really great guy, Anthony Tapoto. If you're listening, the fuck are you doing? <laughs> I'm attacking all of your audience, but it's just like, I'm More just- of a, The funny part is the people that are there for you is who you're attacking. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, why are you listening? What do you care? You already know my life story. Got my art teacher. <laughs> Got my other professor, but I shouldn't attack them. Thank you. Again, <laughs> if, you, if you've hung on this long. But I auditioned and I got the role. And what's so funny about that part is my freshman year, 
it drew a lot of attention that I was the cat in the hat. First of all, all, all the upperclassmen before an audition were like, Howard, you're going to be the cat in the hat. And I was like, thanks. And what was cool about that show is they brought it back three times. So Damn. we did it at the end of the semester. And then in the summer, they, I get the call. I get the call. Hey, Howard, we need you back for the cat in the hat. They're doing it in the summer. We're going to give you a little stipend if you do it. Probably 125 bucks. Chump change now to this high roller. And so I go, we do it again. And then next summer rolls around. They do it again. The sophomore summer. Now, next summer rolls around. They do it again. And they've tacked on another children's show that I'm in. They're doing them in rep. So it was what it's the role I played for the longest wow. in my college career. I played it three different, I played it four times because we did it during the school year. And then I did it in the summer, the summer, and the summer again. And I remember I had this really weird moment with myself. It was after it was over. I take bows seriously. Mm -hmm. I'm really in a, in a bow. I think it's like, it's your <laughs> one moment. I'm like, I, I'm not gaudy about the bow, but it means a lot to me. Thank you for watching. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And I remember after it was over, did my final bow as a cat in the hat. We walked down to our dressing rooms. Again, height of luxury. This is a Connecticut facility, you know, it's too nice. I don't know how it's this nice for the price <laughs> tag I was paying to go there, but it's very nice dressing room. And they had these side bathrooms. So the bathrooms in the dressing room, bathroom down the hall. I go to the guys, I'm going to the bathroom down the hall. I gotta, you know, take a dump or whatever. Probably didn't say that. I probably just went to the bathroom. But for the sake of the story, I said it. And I go into the bathroom. I got this fucking sweaty makeup running down my face. I got this a, a very large hat, easily a foot and a half with magnets on the top that I used to have to balance things on. I remember I took a bow in the bathroom mirror by myself to like be like, this is the last time you were doing this. You've done this for three years. And, and like, I thanked myself for doing it. And I thought this is a private moment I'll never share with anyone. <laughs> That's something I don't think I've ever told anyone. So folks, when you hear a long beep, it's just a redacted story that Howard just told us of his cat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's you know, the commitment there though. Like, I'm sure the people love that performance. That's why I kept coming back, so. I can't believe you asked about it. I, <laughs> asked about it. I had to, I was scrolling down the picture and obviously, you know, like you have done more serious roles, but of course the one that's gonna stick out to me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a very gaudy photo, too. I think I'm jumping up and down holding a bicycle. <laughs> like a I want to say, like, one thing, especially performing with Howard on stage and in class, like, obviously, he's very dedicated to the craft. He's very dedicated to theater and, and making sure that there's a sense of realism in all of his performances. So to say, like, a lot of people are not going to know this because they haven't done improv comedy or comedy in general, but... To have that kind of person, whether they be the unusual character or the straight person, just to make sure they ground that reality is so important, especially because like it just makes the actual scene like feel like something you're actually watching, because that's the beauty of stage performance. So, Howard, I'm curious, because like I'm sure a lot of people also are in the art industry that are listening to this, but can you kind of speak on like where you got that mythology of like really making sure you're keeping into the character, not so much being Howard as said character I, I i do have an answer well first of all thank you thank you for saying all those nice things about me you're an amazing scene partner as well anyone who's listening is obviously a fan of yours uh so i won't gas you up i won't bother it's my time <laughs> uh, <laughs> i will say this i actually do know exactly what is one of the reasons why i think it's easy for me to commit to a bit 
my father is a goddamn insane person. He is in the most beautiful way. I love this man to death, but goddamn it, if if he either knows more than everyone or doesn't know what what is going on at all. I think it's more than everyone. I would like to say he knows a little more than everyone in a nice way. But when I was a child, my dad would do bits all the time. And they wouldn't be bits like, oh, dad's doing a bit around the house. Look at that silly voice dad's doing. Of course, that was an aspect of it. But when we were out in public, he would be, he, he would tell me, he, so my father calls me Skills. This is something I need to explain. My father calls me, my name to my dad is Skills. S-K-I-L-L-Z. He's called me it my whole life. And when I was old enough to be like, why do you call me skills? He goes, I call you skills because you have the skills to pay the bills. And he, you know, it's a very nice kind of affirmation. Very wonderful. Very nice thing that he says about me. And most of the people on my father's side of the family and my sister calls me skills. My mother calls me Hendrix because my middle name is Hendrix. She wanted to name me after Jimi Hendrix. She wanted my name to be Hendrix Howard Powell. My dad was like, no, that dude choked on his own vomit. Let's name my son after me and then throw, toss out his middle name. When we were out, he would be like, Skills, anything I say is bullshit. Anything I say to anyone, I'm always bullshitting them. If you ever hear me saying something to someone and you're like, whoa, whoa, that's not right. Just remember, it's bullshit. And what I need you to do is back it up, whatever it is. <laughs> Back it up. When we get in the car, I'll explain it to you. If you have any question, I'll answer it. But it's bullshit. I'm always bullshitting 100% of the time. Little me was just like, all right, (laughs) this is going to affect me down the line. So like if we were at the grocery store, he would just make up a bit with the grocery store person. He would say something about me. This guy's like my cousin's kid or this guy's uh, whatever. Or like, look at us, we're brothers, some weird shit, just anything. We also we used to have this dog. It was a Corgi Pomeranian mix, Golden Cleopatra Powell, Goldie for short, rest in peace, still not over it. She- <laughs> A true legend. True legend, great dog. But she looked like kind of like a fox and my dad would go, we'd walk her on the beach and uh, people would stop there and go, what kind of dog is this? And he'd go, it's a foxhole. It's a rare breed from China. That's what he'd say. Just make it up. He would go so far into the bit and he would never break. He would never crack. And he would remember the bits. He would see new people and he'd be able to bounce in between these bits. He's the most imaginative person I've ever met in my life, ever. I think that's where I get my commitment to a bit or my ability to kind of abandon all that is normal and be like, this is my world now. Because that is something I had to do ever since I was a kid, just fucking around with my dad. What a fun little gift. What a fun little gift that uh, he gave me. And uh, he still gives it to me. I remember I was on the phone with him like two days ago and he was going on and on in the weeds. He was actually saying crazy shit about the coronavirus vaccine. He was like, what if it's to control your mind and all this stuff? And I was like, oh no, dad, you're not one of these people. And then he goes, no, 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 I'm not. But why don't you write that? Wouldn't that be a crazy script? Little do we know your father is actually the inspiration for just about half of Michael Bay's movies. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's, he always calls up, he calls him Mikey B. And he calls him, <laughs> what if they're from space? And it's... <laughs> so that's actually a good point because your family, I mean, your sister's also very big into the comedy scene. Shout out to Rocky. Is. Yes. Check uh, out Wild Nights of Rocky. That's a yeah, podcast. I was just about, to, was just about to do a shameless plug. You beat me to it. Yeah, Wild Nights <laughs> with Rocky. 
I think her podcast is going to be big time. She's really working really hard at it. And it's a fun concept and it's really her. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of nice to watch her settle into her comedic voice. She's always been someone who I found a lot like my father who loves to just do a bit and do something for the sake of doing it and, and to have a story. She pulls those out of people like no one else. It's really incredible. Yeah. Check it out. Yeah, Wild Nights with Rocky, folks. It's on all the listening streams. Same same place you can listen to us. You can listen to her there. Yeah. But yeah, that's. I, I feel like the Powells are on the horizon. You know, you guys are aiming for that Wayne's kind of reputation. <laughs> Hopefully. I always say this. One of us has got to pull us up. If anyone gets there first, we got to just turn around. Hopefully we'll Kevin Hart this shit. I don't know. <laughs> as being an artist in a pandemic you know it's it's tough because you get in a rut more often than not and i know you and i have sent a couple emails back a couple messages back about writing and like getting some scripts going so yeah it's it's all about finding the inspiration you know that's what led me to the podcast is i wanted to talk to people interview people so that's where we got here but i understand the 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 pandemic putting a rut on everyone for writers especially I, yeah. And you know, I, uh, it's only really recently that I'm actually feeling comfortable calling myself a writer. I, I think a lot of the times what I like to do is uh, if I want to be something, I'm just going to, I put it in my Instagram bio and then I just take the steps to make that thing true about me. I start telling people that I am that thing and then hopefully it comes true. Like stand up in, in particular, like I have not done a real stand up. The only time I've ever done stand up has been over Zoom because. You know, I moved to the city. Coincidentally, a pandemic happens, but I'm not going to let that try and get in the way. So I have all these things that I say about myself that I'm just going to keep saying until they're true. So I'm so handsome. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't felt comfortable calling myself a writer for, for a while. And I had I've written some things like my spec commercial you talked about so kindly. Thank you. I'm so glad you like that. But that was that was honestly one of the first things that I wrote and, and made come to fruition. And even after that, I didn't consider myself a writer. And honestly, I don't feel like I consider myself a writer for that because my writing process for that was very strange. My director of photography and co-director on that project, Christina Delp, she's amazing. You guys will all know her name one day. We were, we were, she was like, I need, I want to do this project. Blah. And I remember being like, okay, I have some ideas. I had some ideas for her. And it was, it went from concept to shot list to film. There was never a piece of paper wow. that we were working on. And I remember the day we were shooting it, there's a little speech that it's a eulogy that someone's giving uh, my girlfriend, actually, she's giving the eulogy. And I remember I just like wrote it on my notes real quick on my phone. I was like, this is what I think a eulogy sounds like, say this, but it was really just concept visuals an idea that we just put to we storyboarded out and then we shot it so i never felt like it was something i wrote but it was it was something i created and that was kind of something that i didn't really come to terms with until the pandemic i remember i had written another uh, uh thing that i filmed i wasn't very proud of it so i don't talk about it that much but still that's something else that i've written and filmed a lot a lot of people can't say that just based on situations you know a lot of writers can't be like oh well i've had this thing produced and the chips have just fallen like that for me. During this pandemic, it, this has been a time for me to actually write a little bit and realize that, oh, you know, I can do this by myself. I can write stuff. I, I just finished taking a uh, writing class, creating characters with Corinne Wells at the Squirrel uh, Comedy Theater online. Hell yeah. And that was the first time where I was like actually writing things week after week putting it up and then you see somebody and, I, and I'm used to writing on my feet. I'm used to improv and you get those laughs right away, but it's different when you have to sit down and write it. And then you're like, Oh, okay. Well, 
I think this is funny. I've set this up intentionally to do all the things that people say are funny. And then you perform it and it either hits or it doesn't hit and you go back and tweak it. It's, it's a very fun process. And I didn't think I would enjoy it as much. And it's something that I feel like I'm really stepping into. And hopefully I have some, some really uh, big goals for this year, 2021, writing wise, writing and producing wise of things I want to get done. I, I hope that I can be able to, at the end of this year, really not have to be like, oh, I am a writer. People will know me as a writer. That would be cool. You know? Hell yeah. Oh, yeah, man. Speaking to existence. I believe in you. I think you got it going. Oh, thank you. I believe in you as well. We be- we've always believed in each other. That's another thing. <laughs> About 301, Kevin and I were like instant friends, which was which was weird. I remember you were one of the last people I was going to hang out with. We were going to hang me, Kevin, my friend Daniel. I was going to like merge friends. I was like, I can't wait. I got city friends for the first time. <laughs> then I got called into work and I was like, oh, we got to reschedule. And then a day later, the pandemic happened. So it's crazy, right? So crazy. Uh, as always, folks, we definitely take time to mention a donation and service that we want to call some attention to. And Howard is so gracious enough to bring one to our attention today. Howard, do you mind telling us what donation we're talking about today? Yeah. So I'm going to pledge five bucks, right? I'm going to, at the end of this podcast, I'm going to donate five bucks. And you want to know why before I tell you what it is? Because you got the five bucks. Yeah, we're all shit broke. We are, but you got the five bucks. And this is this is something that is important to me. So this is the Coalition for the Homeless in New York City. And the reason why I chose this, there's a litany of reasons, but one of the kind of auxiliary reasons I chose it is because a lot of the times, I mean, with the pandemic, homelessness is clearly on the rise and it is very evident in the city, riding on the subway, things like that. There's a lot of people who are clearly down and out. And for me, I've never, I mean, my whole life, I was always told like, don't take out your wallet for anyone. Don't give anyone money. Don't do anything like that. That's how you get in trouble. And there's this stigma to handing people cash. And you feel like if you hand a stranger some cash, uh, is this right for them? Is this what I should be doing? And then if you feel like you don't, you don't hand anyone cash, you're riddled with guilt. It's a really, uh, it's a really shitty feeling. Probably not as shitty as, you know, being that down and out, but it's, you know, it's an uncomfortable feeling that a lot of people have to deal with. I'm always like, oh, well, if I'm not going to give somebody cash on the subway, if I'm going to hold on to this five bucks that I'm going to end up spending on a fucking food truck, why can't I find a way to give this money to someone in a way that I can feel is constructive? So that's why I chose the Coalition for the Homeless, because this organization puts, they like, they have 11 different frontline programs and they save like 3,500 men, women, and children like a day. They help these people out so, so much. And so you give them a little bit of cash, you give them a little bit of money, and you know there's a team of people who know how to deal with people who are. So they, they help all these people. And the, the positive thing is if you give this organization your money, it's a legit place. You give them your money, you can rest assured, I'm doing something to help these people. You can kind of shake off that guilt of I'm commuting to work and, and, I, and I don't know what to do. I don't know how to, help, how to help these people. I, 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 I'm nervous. I'm scared for some reason. All these different stigmas that people feel and are afraid to talk about. You can give this money to the Coalition for the Homeless and then you can actually feel like, oh, I'm, I'm doing something. I did something. I did a little bit uh, of something. I first heard about this organization through my girlfriend, who is more of a humanitarian than I could ever dream to be. She was putting on this, this benefit concert for Christmas. 
completely virtual concert. Uh, I, I, I'm learning how to edit videos on, uh, in my spare time. And uh, she was like, can you edit this? Can you help me put this together, basically? And it was a, a charity concert for the Coalition for the Homeless. No, she didn't reach out to them or anything. And then she was like, uh, she got all her friends to do it and to sing different songs. And she hosted the thing and we edited the video together to kind of make it flow like a concert, even though, you know, everyone is just standing behind like a gray wall. We made it work. All the proceeds went to the Coalition for the Homeless. She raised like a thousand bucks. I think a little over a thousand wow. bucks. Yeah. Shout out. Shout out, right? Kaylee Lozito really doing, she's doing <laughs> the Lord's work. I just thought it was such a wonderful thing that she did. And I was thinking of different charities and I was like, oh, should I do this? Should I do this charity? And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do the Coalition for the Homeless because it's it's something I see every day. I walk out of my apartment and I see somebody who's down and out and struggling. And I think that the city can do a lot more. I think that there's plenty of places where these people can be have a roof over their head. And I think that it's it's a bit of a failure. I don't know the logistics mm-hmm. of it, but I think it's a bit of a failure on, on New York City's hands. I agree. And, uh, I co-sign yeah. it. Great. We co-sign it. <laughs> You, Uncommon Gems punches punches it. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a failure. And I think the Coalition for the Homeless is a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. Of the, of, yeah. of, and I, I hope that they just keep growing. And honestly, in a world where we're talking about fucking AI is like right around the corner. We're talking about a space travel, a commercial mm-hmm. space travel within the next 20 years. Within the next 20 years, that will be a thing. Probably, we still got people who don't even have homes. We still have people who, who don't even have homes. And another thing that really upsets me about it is uh, America is, quote unquote, a first world country. What we all, everyone says, oh, we're a first world yeah. country, we're a first world country. We have places that don't have water. We have homeless on the streets. We have children being left behind in schools and low income housing, people who, who, who are so fucked up yeah. because of neglect. And hopefully I think things are going in the right direction, but I don't know. And, and I will be, I will be vocally, I will vocally criticize it because yeah. there's no reason why I have a goddamn phone that has more technology than a space shuttle in the sixties and people can't, you know, eat, have a fucking, sleep. they can't eat. Yeah. There's not a tent set up in, 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 in a fucking football fields right. for people right now during this, this tumultuous time. It yeah. makes me upset. So that's why you should donate to the Coalition for the Homeless because I'm really upset about this shit. I mean it. I think, uh, you know, so I'm going to donate five bucks at the end of this. If you got a dollar, send it. If you got 50 cents, send it. Who cares? How about this? You know, your money's your money, folks. Whatever you want to do with it, you can do with it. But I challenge you all to start messaging 10 friends. Hey, let's all donate $5 to 10 friends. That's 50 bucks amongst all of you. So you could, 50 bucks literally can feed so many people. You'd be surprised. Yeah, yeah. But that's um, a, that's a I do want to say it's a non-for-profit arms. organization. So all the money literally goes to the homeless. It is to the people that need this money and need the help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like Howard said, they're feeding them, they're housing them, they're sheltering them. More importantly, if you go to their actual website, like Howard was saying, he's met so many people in his life that have told him, why are you taking out money to give to these people? Da, 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 da. There's literal like facts and myths busted on their actual website that break down and also kind of speaking to what we were saying how the government has failed these people they have literal articles showing especially in new york how it got bad how it got this bad for homeless people in new york where it came from and i mean the 1950s i know you and i were just a thought back then oh but that's not too long ago you know that shit systemic racism is still alive and well 
yeah because its roots just go back that far and that's really not that long ago yeah so. yeah that's such a great point bringing up the systemic racism also in the 50s you and i wouldn't have stood a chance uh, <laughs> unless we were a goddamn doo-wop group we would have been oh, i mean it i mean it we wouldn't have had it we wouldn't have had a prayer but i i, I th that's so true all the stuff you said about stigma there's so much stigma and there's so much there's so many things that you need to educate yourselves about and systemic racism being one of them. These people, people of color, they are being put in a situation where they don't have fucking homes because they have literally, literally been disenfranchised by the government, literally been not giving housing loans, but they haven't, they've been denied things from the banks, denied opening checking accounts, shit like that. And then you wonder, it's like, oh, what, what are these people doing? Well, oh, they just need to get a job. They need to get this. It's like, you're coming from people, lines of people, lines of people who are so far behind. I mean, you think about it. If somebody's great, great, great grandfather or grandmother was a slave, chances are they didn't know how to fucking read. Yeah. And they're supposed to raise a people who can fucking go off and, and, and conquer this world that is totally dominated by these elite educated people who have yeah. just been punching down on them for so goddamn long. And people turn their nose up at these people like they don't work hard or they're fucking drug addicts. Well, you know what? All these Wall Street bros are doing lines of cokes off of each other's boners. Yep. And you're going to punch down on these people who are smoking crack that was pushed into their neighborhoods by yeah. the government. That's not a conspiracy. That's like That's fact. legit fact. That's, that's like That's fact. what happened. <laughs> I wish it was a conspiracy. It's not. It's real true shit that happened fucking talk about crack and cocaine how come they're a derivative of the exact same drug they're mm -hmm. essentially the exact same drug right mm -hmm. um and uh you get you go to jail much more for the poor person's drug crack than you do for cocaine it's just terrible so donate to kind of alleviate if you're white your white guilt you got to donate <laughs> white guilt away and if you're not white get your white friends to donate um, <laughs> and do what you can so as always, the link will be in the bio, but it is coalitionforthehomeless.org. Coalition for the Homeless. They are um, never going to want me to be the spokesperson. They are not going to want me. They're going to be like, hey. this guy is weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing we always mention that we're not paid or sponsored by them. <laughs> we are not a paid sponsor. And I think if they heard most of the stuff I had to say, they would be like, we don't want this guy. All they need is your money. Exactly. $5 for me. <laughs> not a lot. They have like actual things to print out. So it's like note cards you can hand out to homeless people that you see on the street as well to like let them know certain neighborhoods that offer shelters, certain neighborhoods that are giving out hot food. So definitely if you just go on their website, print out a couple sheets of that and, you know, just keep them in your wallet, keep them in your purse. If you ever see someone around, if you don't want to spare the money, at least spare them that information that could help out a lot of people. Yeah, it can really help. So little, so little things we got to remember we're all one, man. I don't know if we're all one mind and we're all just kind of missing, missing that. Well, it's all love. It's all just one of us. And uh, we got to look out for each other. So all we got, we're one meteor away from not existing. So truly, it's just gotta, we gotta just take care of each other the best we can. Awesome. Thank you so much for bringing that to your attention, Howard. So now oh, you're the best for doing this. And you <laughs> you are someone who really goes above and beyond to make sure people are safe. I feel like have, have you talked on the podcast about your safe walks thing? That's fucking incredible. Yeah, I, I have not talked about it. Yeah. So I am a volunteer for the Safe Walks NYC group. Check it out on Instagram if you don't know. We're currently stationed in Bushwick at the Morgan Avenue stop. But in November through January, multiple women were attacked. 
by gentlemen and assaulted in many ways. So that's just not right. It's just not right. And I don't know if you guys know this about New York, but the cops don't really do much to stop cases like that. Multiple cases of people being attacked on subways and also on the street. As we know now, many Asian people have also, many elderly Asian people have been attacked. So we're sickening. We are literally just community members, literally people that live in this neighborhood that just meet up. And all we do is offer a service just to make sure that people get home safe. They can just message us on Instagram or go on safe walks. It's walkswlx.com. And you would just send a document over to us. Let us know what time you want us to meet us. We'll go over and literally we're just going to walk you to whatever area you feel safe. Make sure you get there safe. And that's it. Then we go back. Oh, my God. That's such a great thing. I remember seeing that you were doing that on Instagram. I was like, wow, it's so great. I mean, I, I know some girls at my job. They'll be like, hey, yeah, uh, I got to spend 40 bucks on an Uber because I'm afraid to get, get off the goddamn subway. And you guys are really doing some great stuff. That is so awesome and incredible. And it's what's cool about it. I'll say this and then we'll, we'll get to our thing, right? It's one of those things. It just feels so earnest and genuine. There's nothing put on about it. There's nothing frilly. There's nothing. Look at what we're doing. It's just like, yeah, we fucking get it. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, letting me shout it out. And yeah, shout out to Peter Carey. He's the guy that runs the whole thing. It would not be possible without this man. Um, He does so much work. You know, get involved in some things, folks. I know we ask the people that sign up for those safe walks just to dedicate two hours of their week. Not two hours of their day. Not two hours of every day. Two hours of their week. Just because it's just that kind of like dedication would just show a lot to the community. And I think as Howard was saying, but with the coalition for the homeless, we're all humans on this earth. Why, why can't we help each other out at the same time? Yeah. All right. So Howard, here we go. We, we were going to talk about one of your true passions, your uncommon gem. Howard, do you mind telling us what you chose for yeah. your uncommon gem? Yeah. So I feel like when I'm, I, I, I've spent so much time thinking and I, I texted Kevin a little bit about this, but I'll share it on here. I was like, what's my uncommon gem? What's something that I feel like speaks to me that everyone is overlooking? And I kept getting hung up on, if you've seen the movie Fifth Element with Bruce Willis, Chris Tucker has this amazing performance as like a bass disc jockey persona, like celebrity, (laughs) who's like constantly live streaming everything that's going on. It's a wonderful performance. I think Mm -hmm. it's absolutely wonderful performance. And I was like, I can't do a whole podcast on just that i can't do it just on chris tucker's performance because the movie great movie but i could take it or leave it it's his performance that makes it a gem for me right and i'm like well what what am i gonna do it on that what other chris tucker movies has what what has he been in that speaks to me what 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 and then i thought the rush hour franchise keep in mind born in 96 right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. actually you know i was young i was young when these movies came out these movies these uh, movies i'm talking about are the rush hour franchise in particular rush hour 2 that's my uncommon gem just gonna cut to the chase rush hour 2 these movies were fast-paced really loud and interesting and they had some amazing set pieces that really attracted a child and I love them and even in my adolescence growing up a little bit I'd still watch them and I'd love them and I wouldn't think much about it and I told Kevin I was like we're gonna watch these movies we're gonna watch we're gonna watch Rush Hour 2 that's gonna be my uncommon gem and then I watched the movie and I was like I didn't remember 
the uh, amounts of misogyny and catcalling and just a litany of other things, yeah. uncomfortable racial remarks and yep. stuff <laughs> uh, that could that could totally fly in the 2000s, could soar in the 2000s. It was uh, a different time for sure. It was yeah. a different time for sure. And they've definitely gone sour a bit. So I started looking up some stuff before we really get into it. I was like, oh, that's weird, right? Do other people feel that way about this movie? Rush hour controversy. Click, 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 enter. And I found out, so the director of the movie. Oh yeah, Brett um, Ratner, we should mention, yeah. Oh my God. He really is problematic. Didn't know, didn't know <laughs> he was uh, accused of sexual misconduct. Don't know anything about him. Probably did it. I'll say that. Don't, no research, no whatever. So that's terrible. And I found that out after I watched the movie because mm. the name didn't click for me. And I was like, well, that makes sense. That makes sense why Chris Tucker's character constantly is <laughs> verbally coming on to every woman in the movie. And yep. I could see why it would make most people uncomfortable. It definitely made me uncomfortable, but that's it, that's what makes it interesting, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of a bit of a time capsule of a movie of what people could get away with at that time. And I'm really excited to talk about it. And uh, all these controversial things, the racial things, the sexual things, uh, <laughs> I didn't want to, to taint things. I wanted it yeah. to be all of those things and be what it is. And I just kind of wanted to look at it as a whole and talk about what definitely doesn't work and what does work. But I know as a child watching those movies, before any of those things are on my Rolodex of things that I should frown upon or even understand, <laughs> I remembered it being a movie that brought me some joy and was very entertaining uh, yeah. as a kid. And I was still able to find those moments throughout the film quite often. So yeah, that's that's my uncommon gem. I, I don't know where to begin. <laughs> yeah, I, I got you. Don't worry. But I'm glad you you called out, you know, yes, like many movies, even before the 2000s, like very problematic, a lot of issues. It was a very men written era, you know, only men writing oh most God, of the movies, yeah. only men, specifically white men directing and writing most of these movies. So yes, there are going to be issues. But as you said, you know, when you watch things as a kid, you know, a lot of those layers are pulled back. I know like Ace Ventura for me, rewatching that now as an adult, there's a lot wrong, but at the time as a kid, it, it really was just a joy. And I'm sure it had a huge influence on you as a comedian because Chris Tucker's performance, as well as Jackie Chan's performance is very physical comedy as well yeah. as the actual language comedy too. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you <laughs> called that out. Yeah. Cause I do think, I do think the physical comedy, I, I wrote down, do you know who Buster Keaton is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I felt like, and I think this is kind of very general observation of Jackie Chan's work. I, I think he has that sort of command over, I have these four walls that I'm wrapped in, I have this screen, and I have this environment. Uh, how can I make this the most dynamic, physical environment uh, imaginable? I mean, he mm -hmm. creates, Jackie Chan creates these incredible they almost feel improvised in the moment because mm -hmm. his character is usually just grabbing whatever he can to create these balletic stunts that are out of this world. They are out of this world. And yeah. they remind me of those. I mean, I've watched plenty of, uh, gone down the rabbit hole plenty of times on some Buster Keaton old, uh, for those who don't know, Buster Keaton was a, a silent filmmaker 
And he was known for these huge set stunt pieces that he would use the camera, part illusion, I would say, and part true stunts. And he would use the camera to tell a lot of jokes, right? If you're familiar with the filmmaker Wes Anderson, he does this very well. He, he's clearly yeah. nodding to Buster Keaton. He'll have moments where he'll use the depth of the camera to tell a joke. Someone running away to the vanishing point uh, on the camera very funny or someone coming out of one side of the camera and then just coming out of the exact same side of the camera again. Little things like that that you can only do on film, they would be magic if they were done on a stage play. It would be like, oh, this person is doing a magic trick. That's what Buster Keaton does. That's what filmmakers like Wes Anderson does. And that's what Jackie Chan does in his his fight choreography. And I think it's one of the reasons why he he's the most prolific in that field. And it's so it's so interesting how many great ways they do it. I think they do it in the first movie quite well. Yep. They do it in the second movie quite well. I'm not as familiar with the third film uh, because, you know, I was much <laughs> older when the third film yeah. came out. Yeah, they took some time with that one. That's for sure. Took some time. And Jackie Chan, well, Chris Tucker at the time of filming Rush Hour 2 was relatively young. He was like almost 30s. Yeah. Jackie Chan was like pushing almost 50, I think, at the time. Like he's yeah. very old when he's filling Rush Hour 2. <laughs> oh my God. He but moves, moves to his like credit, still, yeah, still doing the physical stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, I have so many things to say about this move. We did knock the controversy out right away, but I'm sure it will come up again because it is a staple of this film, right? Mm -hmm. The movie starts. <laughs> starts with a, a very extremely long title sequence which is just exterior shots of different mm -hmm. daytime things happening in, in Hong let's, Kong. Uh, let, let's maybe mention that this is a buddy cop movie so like they, it, buddy cop. it's like a trope of like buddy cop movies to be kind of just absolutely severely serious but Rush Hour is the most comedic version of that. <laughs> yeah it is it is and it, it, it definitely lives right in that buddy cop sweet spot it's got that early 2000s late 90s like here's the san francisco bridge here's uh, the house from full house even though it takes place in hong kong it's like those same like auxiliary yeah. shots like mrs doubtfire send <laughs> like, the theme send the theme yeah 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 this is where we're at this is how the movie starts there's a bomb there's a woman who's planting a bomb somewhere the bomb goes off forget the bomb we go straight into our two <laughs> protagonist in the car they have a rapport doesn't matter if you know it we got a loudmouth la cop and then we got, a, we got like a sort of uh what's the word i'm looking for stoic yeah stoic stoic Chinese. reserved yeah stoic reserved chinese agent right mm -hmm. i don't know what i think he's a police officer yeah too. he's a detective i believe yeah. he's a detective right mm -hmm. he's black he's asian it is clearly a thing you know it's not like oh these are two, two guys your friends it's like yeah this guy is a black guy and this guy's an Asian guy. And that's the meat of the movie. That is the whole meat of the movie. It's like, look at these two different racial, racial identities collide. Mm -hmm. And what I think is so interesting about that is Chris Tucker's character, right? He, he's embodying a lot of very fun black tropes, right? Yeah. He's, they're, they're fun. But what I think is more fun is when he embodies American tropes. Yes. When he's he's because he's very arrogant. He's very <laughs> he's very rude to people who don't speak the same language as him. He does all the things that almost like a Karen would do, mm -hmm. but he's embodying them in this, you know, like witticisms, you know, smart aleck, <laughs> fast-paced sort of oh, death jam comic era. Yeah. There's like a really funny scene early on where like he gets in a taxi and he's yelling like at an Asian driver, like, follow that car. 
Hey, follow that limo. This is a chase, okay? Wherever it goes, you go. You're not moving. This is the opposite of chasing. What? I will slap you if you don't move this car. I'm gonna slap you. I'm gonna slap you. Okay. All right. Okay, look. Here. You understand that? Now you're speaking my language. Well, get the hell on in. Come on, let's go. And that, to me, I think is one of the most fun parts of the movie is that you kind of get to laugh at the American. I mean, I, I don't know if I don't think American audiences are laughing at it because they are thinking, oh, look how debaucherous an American is in any other country other than America. I think they're just laughing at it. But I think from this, uh, you know, there's been some time we can reflect. And I'm not proud of a lot of things Americans do. Not proud. And think that he embodies those things so well yeah. and it's so funny and the film starts with him in the passenger side seat of the car just women minding their own business he flips through a book and he's trying to speak their language hey ladies how you doing women all day yet time mook some tomasat yo man hey where you going let's get some sushi hey hey cutie you see the way those girls drove off? They was laughing at us. Those girls drove off because of you. All I did was invite them to have a drink. You invited them to get naked and sacrifice a small goat. Which word was goat? Yeah. And that's the whole movie. It's, it's got this sort of Shakespearean comedy of errors yeah. with this uh, sprinkle of misogyny, which is almost in the beginning of the movie, I actually wrote down the timestamp where I thought, okay, this is unforgivable. <laughs> 24:30 is 24 minutes and 30 seconds into the movie. I thought I was like, oh, okay, this guy is uh, just a dick. Because <laughs> uh, at, at first it's like, oh, is he just kind of like a cute guy who can't quite get it? He's just trying his best to be earnest with these women. <laughs> no. And it's at 24:30. If you're watching along, playing this as a commentary, which is the only way I suggest you listen. <laughs> At that point in the movie, you're like, okay, this is, I'm soured on this guy a bit. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned the Shakespearean kind of element. Because, like, it is a thing in storytelling, like, a stranger in a strange world. So, the first rush hour was Jackie Chan being in L.A. and Chris Tucker kind of, like, guiding him through L.A. So, rush hour two is the same thing, but in reverse, where Jackie Chan is now guiding Chris Tucker's character in Hong Kong. Yeah. So yeah. that that is a lot of the elements of the Rush Hour franchise is that in the first movie, Jackie Chan has terrible English, so therefore Chris Tucker has to shit on him. But in this yeah. movie, Chris Tucker has very terrible language here. So <laughs> I think it's Cantonese. Let's see. Cantonese is the language within the Chinese branch. All right. Yeah, I think it's Cantonese. Okay. See, that's one thing too is I was dying to get the, the Asian perspective on this movie. I was dying oh, to like yeah. pick apart some of my Asian friends and be like, well, no one wants to ask someone this question, but I want to be like, how do you feel about this movie? Where does it push the line? Where does it disgust you? And where is it right on? That's something I'm dying to know. And I think I'm going to have to get to the bottom of that one day. This movie is goddamn bonkers from the start. It's an hour 30, hour 35, hour 40. It's no more than an hour 40. It's mm. got its foot on the gas the entire time, <laughs> which I loved. I love that it kind of is thing after thing after thing. There's a lot of strange devices that I think were clearly just done to make things easier. For example, this is happening in China 
And it, because an American embassy gets bombed, the Secret Service comes in and they're like, we're taking over this case. I'm Agent Starling. I'm the American you're going to have to answer to. Because uh, you probably, as an American audience in the 2000s, couldn't palate a movie that would have to be mostly not in the language you speak. So this is like little things like that, I think are super, super funny and weird that I think watching now it's, it's aged so poorly in so many different ways, but now it's kind of teetering on it's aging so much that it's almost like uh, tropes. You get to just yeah. laugh at the tropes. Kind of like if you watch Nosferatu, that old movie, right? Mm -hmm. the it feels movie, like, yeah. yeah, it feels like I've seen all of this before, but it's the first time it's being done because mm -hmm. all of these tropes, these tropes were born from this. And I think this was probably coming off the tail end of a lot of other buddy cop films. And oh, I yeah. feel like it kind of, really suck them into a bit of a time capsule this is kind of the <laughs> last time we're going to be able to really watch a, a buddy cop film that's done like this you're totally right yeah that like so for those that don't know like the buddy cop movies have been going on even from like the 60s like that's how long this like kind of style of movies have been going on turner and hooch that's a buddy cop movie about tom hanks and a dog yeah. But, you know, like, that's how much they were reaching to the bottom of the barrel. But Rush Hour is unique, as we mentioned, because it's a black man and an Asian man. That actually almost never happened, especially, like, in the 2000s and 90s. That was yeah. rather rare. So yeah, it is and unique it in that sense, in, in the sense that it does play on those tropes, too. Yeah. I love how you mentioned Turner and Hooch, because I think that's exactly what the pitch room meeting was. It's like, <laughs> what, what have we done? We've done white guy and black guy. We've done white guy and dog. What can we do? And somebody's like, I got it let's put two different racial groups together and that be the plot of the movie. And I honestly think that's probably why they're having trouble. I think they tried to do like a TV show of this franchise. That's right, yeah. They're having trouble and it, the movie's kind of, you know, devolved as they went on because we're outgrowing a lot of that. Like mm -hmm. if I'm watching a movie starring Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker, I don't give a shit that one is Asian <laughs> and one is black. I just want to watch them do their thing together. And a lot of the movie is that. A lot of the movie is like, these two guys seem like they're real friends. Yeah. They seem like they really get each other in a way that nobody else gets them. Like, for example, when you realize you find out both of their fathers died in the force. So yeah, yeah. bonding moment between them. <laughs> or when they have their little witticisms back and forth where one is educating the other on their culture or just educating them on a regular life etiquette or yeah. something that is, those moments feel really interesting, but it toes, it toes a really fine line. And I think that's why a lot of people are having trouble bringing it back. I will say this about the movie. Everyone is an expert in hand-to-hand -hand combat. <laughs> yeah. Everyone, every single person <laughs> that they interact with is knows some form of trained to an extensive degree martial art. Yep, yep. There's Hilarious. even a part where they go to a restaurant to meet Don Cheadle's character, Kenny. And, oh yeah, we should mention, like, they're barely in Hong Kong for the movie. They're in Hong Kong for maybe, like, 30 oh, minutes. Oh my god, And it's yes. back to LA. <laughs> yeah, and I wonder how much of that is, like, it's probably super expensive to film a movie probably. overseas. I wonder how much of that is, like, oh, fuck it, we gotta get him back here somehow. <laughs> At some point, Don Cheadle's character, who, like, runs an Asian restaurant, he's a black man, for those that don't know John Cheadle, but... Yeah, isn't the line, I think the line is, like... Kenny, you embarrassing yourself. You're a black man with a Chinese restaurant on Crenshaw. That scene is incredible to me. That's one of the scenes I have written down. I'm so glad. I was almost going to jump to it, and I was like, we shouldn't. And then you were like, we are. And I was like, I forgot we're on the Uncommon Gems. 
play by our own rules. Yeah. This scene is so incredible. First of all, I don't know much about this, but Kendrick Lamar, right, has this character he constantly refers to as Kung, Kung Fu, Fu Kenny. I'm a hundred percent, if not ninety-nine percent sure. <laughs> That character is entirely based on Don Cheadle's little <laughs> bit role in Rush Hour 2. I think Don Cheadle's done a music video with him reprising yeah. that role. I don't know. But first of all, it's Don Cheadle, right? You're like, <laughs> okay, that's Don Cheadle. Probably watching the movie at that time, you wouldn't be like, okay, this is Don Cheadle. This is War Machine. This is all I'm thinking about. <laughs> but that's all I was thinking about. And this scene, this character is incredible. He goes in the back. They go, loud mouth come in, both of them, too too much. Chris Tucker's character, Carter, is, is riling everyone up as he does. He comes in, makes a big fuss, and then he gets to the bottom of it every time. He takes them into the back, and they start arguing. He's like, you know what? Let's fucking fight. And Chris Tucker's response is, a man who has fought with everyone with his fists the whole movie. Without <laughs> a gun points it at him and Kung Fu Kenny responds by just doing a, a martial arts stance with the gun in his face. This man is ready to fucking die. He doesn't give a fuck. He doesn't give a literal shit. He's like, I am ready to die today in the back of my shop. You come in here fucking with me. I'll die. Puts his hands up. Then Jackie Chan's character, Lee, touches him on the shoulder. Hey, it's okay. We don't have to go there. He swats him away starts fighting the both of them. <laughs> then they get each other in a chokehold, Lee and Kung Fu Kenny, and they realize based on the style that they fought, they had a common teacher of yep. martial arts. One Jackie Chan's teacher, the other teacher, Kung Fu Kenny's teacher, was in fact the brother of Jackie Chan's <laughs> martial art teacher. It's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible it's... moment. Yeah, really good. It's also a really good bit of physical comedy between Jackie Chan and Don Cheadle because it's like legit. Like they're giving each other like the what the fuck kind of face while they're like doing the same yeah. moves. Yeah, they're mirroring each other. <laughs> they end in the exact same thing. And it's so fun because it's kind of for the first time, it's either, I think this is, is clear throughout the movie, it's either our protagonists are on the back foot yep. and they are running and fighting people away or they are agitators. They are winning the fight. <laughs> It's one or the other. And this is kind of one of the fun times in the movie where you see Jackie Chan, this man who can do all these incredible feats, <laughs> jump from buildings, jump, do all this crazy <laughs> shit with this dude in the back of like an underground gambling ring. And in a Chinese dude, restaurant at Crenshaw. <laughs> and what's so great about it is he's wearing like this, the most cultural appropriation. Yep. Like it's just so fucked up. And yeah, I, I guess I shouldn't have said what's so great about it, but it's just so absurd. It's yeah. absurd. And I think the older the movie gets, the more absurd it's becoming. And honestly, I think that's going to be in its favor because yeah. the stuff is so kind of now it's, a, it's very unpalatable. I'm sure at the time for plenty of people, it was unpalatable. But now it seems like the entertainment industry has deemed it. This is it makes me a little uncomfortable. And so they are just going to keep moving in that direction. I think the more we as a people are like, that shit's weird. The more I think we'll have a resurgence of being like, oh, this movie is just so absurd. Yeah. Look what they thought was appropriate. Look at this, look at that. That's my hope for the film. If not, it could just keep, <laughs> I could watch it in 15 years and be like, Jesus Christ, I got to delete that podcast. <laughs> Hey, you know what? We addressed the problems. So long as we did that, we we know it's fucked up, folks. But we know it's fucked up. 
Yeah. But you watched it too. I know. Yeah, you let's, yeah, let's be honest. You watched it. You laughed. It's not you all laughed. bad. <laughs> not all bad. Right? Like most, like most things. Yeah, let's, let's talk about some of your favorite scenes of the movie. The massage parlor fight. Yeah. Scene. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. First of all, this is another moment. This is one of those moments where I felt like it was very Buster Keaton, even though it wasn't. There's plenty of other moments that are much more that, but th- there's this one moment where Carter, Chris Tucker's character, I'm gonna keep mm-hmm. saying their names until everyone's right there with me. <laughs> they think they got their guy. They got their man. Oh, right? yes. <laughs> what is his name? Ricky Tan. They think yeah. they got Ricky Tan. Fucking awesome name. That for a bad guy too. Okay, we got him. Uh, Jackie Chan's character Lee. He's like, dude, let's let's just play it cool, man. Yeah. Maybe let's call some backup. Let's just relax. Chris Tucker, Carter, arrogant. He's <laughs> 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 like, I'll take care of this. Walks over, snatches the laptop out of this guy's hand. Little Ricky throws it on the ground, begins stomping on it. It's basically like, you're under arrest. What the fuck are you gonna do in your little robe in this massage parlor? While he's stomping, while he's viciously stomping on this man's laptop, (laughs) which I assume back then in the 2000s probably went for a million dollars, a personal computer, stomps it. And you see everyone in the massage parlor get up as if to be like, oh, we're gonna protect Ricky Tan. This is something that Carter misses because of Carter's arrogance. He's literally just looking down, just stomping on his laptop while this is happening. And Lee, meanwhile, is shook. Lee, he comes back in from wherever he is and he's like, oh shit, I knew it. Of course I knew it. That's why I told you to play it fucking cool. Carter, what are you doing? They have an amazing fight scene. They oh, are- we, gotta, we gotta shout out the line. Because <laughs> of course, like you said, Chris Tucker's character is just arrogant about it. But once he realizes all these people are around him, he looks at Lee and goes, Lee, why didn't you tell me this man rolls like this? I told you no, already. You didn't. Oh my God, yes. That's the thing is, it, it's constant. It's such a, it's such an amazing character game, right? <laughs> Carter is always stepping in it and then it's someone else's fault. It's always like, Carter, don't do that. Does it turn to them? Why'd you do that? He's always stepping in it. He's always arrogant. And uh, that fight scene's incredible, right? You have these two people. One, they're clearly outmatched from the start. You get keyed into that before the characters get fully keyed into that, which is such a fun little little device, filmmaking device. I love that kind of stuff. It makes it feel really special. It actually, in the in the short you called out, that was one thing I tried to capture was this moment where it's like something is happening behind them we are all kind of keyed into this what the fuck is going on before our <laughs> protagonist knows what the, what the real uh shit is they have this amazing fight scene they're all half naked because they're in a massage parlor there's witticisms and they end up losing the fight they get trapped in a car they get completely disrobed and they get thrown off into a freeway the little things like that in this movie is I think what makes the franchise special yeah. is these moments where all of the negatives aside, I'm not watching the movie to hear what these people have to say about anyone. All I'm watching this movie is, okay, they're going to chit chat for a bit and then they're going to be in the shit. Chit chat mm-hmm. for a bit, they're in the shit. They're in the car because they're on the way for the, to the bullshit. They're on the plane because they're on the way for the thing I want to see them do, which is fight. It's an action movie at its core, 100%. It's a buddy cop action movie comedy. I don't care about any of the, of the comedy, any of the funny. It's nice. I don't care about it. All I want to see is, is Jackie Chan really do what he does best. That's fight choreography. Every scene, every scene he fights in or every scene he's involved in, there's so much environment work, so much like prop work going on that you just don't see that nowadays in this kind of era. Like it's a lot more CG. Like 
certain martial arts movies still stick to it certain martial arts movies will have that moment but to see an actor literally do all of his own stunts all of them and incorporate so many different wacky style like yes jackie chan's a really great martial artist but he is doing some of the silliest movements and like actions to fight these people in robes and whatnot (laughs) yeah and as as an actor too it's it's really cool what he's doing is he's he's always it's you can always tell what emotional state he's he he's in you can always tell when he thinks he might lose this fight or when he's back footed or, or times where he's confident in what he's he's done and it makes for amazing amazing comedy i it's so great that you mentioned that and i think that's kind of why the movies devolve a bit too as they go on the bigger budgets they get the, the style of filming i think changes slightly yeah because with jackie chan's movies I think I've heard a few interviews of him talking about it. He's like, you got to film it where you can see what's going on. And then in in the early 2000s and the mid 2000s, right? Even 2010, even now, they've changed action movies to really quick. We're going to cut on the action. We're going to, we're going to make it seem like a lot of stuff is happening. And I think that came from the Bourne Identity Damon films. They had this real cool gorilla style. What the fuck is going on? Matt Damon's punching people. We got to watch this shit sort of shaky cam. And I think then, then you had the Matrix, right? which is not doing that. The Matrix is these clean things where you can see all these these movements. And I think they tried to blend the two. You have action movies with amazing set pieces, amazing martial arts. And then you have like Born Identity, all American, this guy's in there, you're right there with him. And I think they blended the two uh, and made this sort of muddy thing in a lot of action movies. And Rush Hour 2, I will say this, in my opinion, and I could be wrong, I don't think it does that. I think it, and for Rush Hour 1 as well, I think they do a good job of the camera is there to show you what the fuck is happening. It's not hiding anything. If it is hiding something, it's intentional. And it's also a device. It is a canvas. It is a device that is helping push the comedy along. And that's what makes Jackie Chan's film so special because he's always telling a story with his fight scenes. They're still telling a story. They're pushing the narrative along. You're learning a little bit about this person watching them fight. You learn a little bit about Jackie Chan, uh, pardon me, not Carter, Lee's character by watching him fight. You learn a little bit about Carter by watching him fight. Mm -hmm. He's arrogant. He's all these things and they come through in all of their, their fight scenes. And that's what makes the movie worth watching, in my opinion. So again, I said at 24.30, it's when we realized that Carter is an unforgivable dog of a man. And it's when the woman who's delivering the bombs walks into the Hong Kong detective office and uh, she's going to deliver a bomb. We as the audience know, oh, this is the bomb woman. Mm-hmm. And he looks at her. Cat calls her immediately, like doesn't even hesitate. <laughs> immediately, right away, Cat calls her. And it's wickedly inappropriate because this woman, what? okay, it's never appropriate, right? When they're in the car and it's a party atmosphere in the beginning of the movie, it feels like, okay, that could be like a genuine place you might pick someone up. And we pulled up, their windows were down, I said something cute, and then maybe it worked out. You could possibly, possibly, if you really dig, forgive that one. This one, this woman is delivering a package. She is at work. Leave her alone, Carter. She's at work. Sure, she's there to perform an act of terrorism. Sure. But you don't know that, Carter. You don't know this woman's a terrorist. And you want to know what? If she was a terrorist, leave her the fuck alone. She's at work. That problem, that point in the movie bothered me a lot. Then you have an explosion. Lee thinks Carter is dead. There's a good 
four or five minute portion of the movie where yep. we have to watch Jackie Chan's character deal with the loss <laughs> of this man he's been on so many adventures with. And he looks so sad. So sad the whole time. The whole There's time. that great scene where he gets in the car and then I'll be missing you by Puff Daddy and Faith. Mm-hmm. Clearly dedicated to Biggie Smalls, that song, but yep. in this context, very funny to see Jackie Chan just do the like, they have a very funny scene where they do like rock their heads and cars in Rush Hour franchise, yeah. so. Yeah, and then you have him doing it alone. And it's yeah. and it, it, it's it's a beautiful moment. It really mm-hmm. is a beautiful moment. And that actually, to me, I think is a prime example of when they are, they're towing this line of, of, of racial whatevers. Mm-hmm. And that to me feels like an earned moment where it's like, yeah, look at these two different people coming from two different walks of life learning to enjoy each other and remember each other for what their communities have contributed. It's, it's really beautiful. It's really beautiful. <laughs> and this movie, it, it, it doesn't hit those beautiful moments quite often, but when it does, it's, it's an A+. Plus. Yeah, I said you got early 2000s R&B. Okay, and then we get onto the yacht where yes. <laughs> what I, wrote, I wrote the white guy, clearly the villain, forgot about the twist, <laughs> forgot about the twist entirely. Doesn't even Carter call it out? He's like, follow the rich white man. Follow the rich white man? Exactly. Now you're learning. Every big crime has a rich white man behind it waiting for his cut. Now, in our case, we know who the rich white man is. Stephen Rang. Who? Stephen Rang, the hotel billionaire. I saw him on Rick Tan's boat. And this movie has so many little meta moments like that. I think it's aware. <laughs> it's aware that it's this buddy cop. And I think that you... Carter's character is the only one who can do that sort of meta call out, mm. screenwriter's call out and not take you out of the film. And it is a plot device. He <laughs> says that on his hunch. He's like, I think that white guy's up to no good. And <laughs> it's true, he was up to no good. It didn't seem right. And that is the catalyst for him to go back to LA and to solve this mystery is based off him just not trusting white people. And if I've been told anything my whole life is not to trust white people. So I get it. I fucking get it, man. <laughs> that dude was creepy. And he got his comeuppance, whether they were earned or not. Ricky Tan's father's the old partner. What the oh, yeah. fuck? Big twist. Okay. He, she gets shot off the boat. Not dead. Twist. He gets shot <laughs> off the boat. And I remember thinking, why wouldn't he just shoot Jackie Chan too? He's right there. You're in water. Just shoot him. You guys have already done so much wrong. Just kill him. But then we wouldn't have gotten a little boat fight scene and the movie would have ended really bad. Really Uh, great uh, moment where Chris Tucker gets knocked out. Oh, yeah. The bomb lady. Yeah. The bomb lady knocks out Chris Tucker. Really funny. Kicks her right in the face. (laughs) And, you know, and, and honestly, I think what's so rewarding about that moment is I don't even have to really recall, but I'm sure he said something along the lines of, Just kick me. You must be out of your mind. You want some of me? I'm finna give you a LAPD ass kicking. In the middle of a fight. And she yep. kicked him in the face. And I don't think she kicked him in the face because she he was being she was being chased by him and her, her evil plot could be foiled. I think she kicked him in the face because he's a bit of a, a fuck boy. I'll stand by that. <laughs> Most of the time, I think Carter's character is getting hit in the face because he's stepped out of bounds a bit. Follow the rich white guy. Oh my god! And then this scene, we cannot, we cannot make this the uncommon gem and not talk about this scene in the movie. Yes. The peeping tom scene where oh. they're just salivating over secret agent <laughs> Bell or whatever. So yep. what the fuck? Yep. Very problematic. Very very invasive of people's 
<laughs> privacy yeah. but and then you have you have them both fighting over it you have carter's yeah. character and this is kind of you know what's it's so weird because it almost is it's almost redeeming because it's it's so weird to see lee's character kind of coveting someone in a in an almost earnest but disgusting <laughs> way like he's like you never see him it seems like he's never talking about women yeah. or whatever and he's got this moment where he's staring at this person Lee, what's going on man what are you talking about she's getting undressed what she's just getting undressed yeah, no <laughs> it's not right I think that's the beauty of the movie, too, though. Like, I think that's not necessarily Lee stooping to Carter's level, but more Lee adopting some of Carter's, like, personalities. Like, the movie franchise does very well, because, as you mentioned, like, Carter all of a sudden is an amazing fighter in combat, like, out of nowhere. Yeah, just picking it up from watching it. He's like, (laughs) I've been in an L.A. cop for long enough. I've seen some martial arts. (laughs) But, yeah, you have this weird scene my first thought is when they find out that the bomb is in the other bomb, they think the bomb is in the building. I would call. I would call. I would <laughs> right. be like, one of us go and run, and I'm going to call and see if we can get this building evacuated. I don't know. So this leaves us probably event wise, we're at Don Cheadle. We already covered that. The snakeskin suit. I think we can jump to the casino and then kind of cap it off, right? Sure. Yeah. We're there, right? The casino, what's the big twist in the casino? That Ricky Tan is back to life and is yep. actually the bad guy? Turns uh, out. So, white savior. Uh, <laughs> is actually, the white guy is the savior of the movie somehow. <laughs> yeah, get to this casino after riding in this another tractor trailer filled with all these statues of money. Yep. The movie is so, you just are on the ride with them. You just got to buy it. Jackie Chan gets a bomb stuffed in his mouth. The whole casino breaks out into a huge fight. And there's just more of these amazing action set pieces. Yeah, Chris um, Tucker has a one-on-one in his snakeskin suit against the bomb lady. Yeah, the bomb and... <laughs> How does that end? Does he kill her? Why can't I He remember? does kill her, but okay, so, yeah, so she is like literally, he's on the back foot. He's literally grabbing things off casino tables to like block her attacks and like eventually... She pulls a sword out of this stone statue and just starts swinging at him. Yeah. But um, she takes a fatal blow, and you think Chris Tucker legitimately gets stabbed, but it turns it's out that money. he stole money from the truck. It doesn't pierce his suit. Yes. So then yes. he pushes her off into, like, a statue, which then the statue falls and stabs her and impales her. And <laughs> yeah, what a violent way to go. What a violent way to go. And I think what's so funny about that moment is, is Lee has got some business he's got to take care of because mm-hmm. Ricky Tan is still alive. I got to go. <laughs> Carter's like, I'll handle this. And he handles it by impaling the woman. <laughs> That's how he handles it. That's crazy to me. And it feels like it ends really fast. Yeah, uh, the, after that, we're pretty much just wrapping it up. <laughs> it feels like they're just like, wow, you cracked it. All right, well, no paperwork. Go home, slap on the ass. All yeah. right, well done. Oh yeah, we have to mention that um, Jackie Chan has Ricky Tan, or uh, Lee has Ricky Tan at gunpoint, but he can't pull the trigger because he doesn't want to kill him. He can't can't kill people. That's his rule. His life. The meanwhile, (laughs) Carter's in the background just yelling. Oh hell no, he don't went too far. Now Lee, shoot his ass right now, Lee, shoot his ass. What are you gonna do, Lee? All you gotta do is pull that trigger back and bam! Are you gonna spend the rest of your life hiding like your father? Man, don't let him talk about your daddy like that. Shoot him, Lee. You can't do it, can you? Yes, hell you can, Lee. Ain't nobody up here but us, man. Go up on him, man. He's trying to punk you. 
Shoot him! Come on! You ain't gonna shoot him, come fool his ass or something! What's so great about that too is I would love, I mean, I wanna watch so much behind the scenes because I feel like they mm -hmm. just let him go. I can't imagine a writer <laughs> writing any of that stuff now. And what this is one little theme throughout the movie that I think speaks for the entirety of the American criminal justice system. Anytime Carter does anything wrong, right? Anything wrong, anything like, oh, this would be really, you know, a lot of stuff to deal with. This is bad PR. He's like, just say it happened a different way. Yep. <laughs> you know, he's, he's like, shoot him. We'll kick him out. He's like, kick him out the window. Oh, I fell, you know, just all this little <laughs> stuff that they say. Just covering up all their tracks. Yeah, it, it, it's and it's it's such a little fun thing for you to just be like, yeah, you know, it, it explains it all away. Just yeah. to be like, I'm a cop, I can do whatever I want. Sad, but true. <laughs> it kind of that whole thing ends with the woman coming in with the bomb. She's at her wit's end, right? Oh wait, hold on. Is this the bomb lady? Is the bomb lady back? She unveiled <laughs> herself. I don't know. She comes in with the bomb. She comes back. Classic rush hour. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And she goes, she's got this bomb. They have no idea what to do. They jump out the window. They slide down an electrical wire with their coats and they end up, this is one of those moments where I was like, this is filmmaking at its finest. You can quote me on that. They are falling. They're dangling in the streets, you know, about 12 feet off the ground. They kind of like, okay, we're alive. Okay, we're fine for a second. A tractor trailer comes barreling towards them. They're suspended in air. Uh, Lee and Carter push each other off. They spread apart and the bus, or pardon me, the tractor trailer goes in between them. We have an amazing shot of Jackie Chan running on the side of the thing. He got his shit right. He's a train fighter. He's been around the block. And then it cuts to Carter just spitting, rolling on the side, parallel. Hanging around the track. Oh like. my God. If you don't laugh at that, if you don't laugh at that, there's yeah. something wrong with that it. That is it's some pure so company. funny. And then I think it cuts back to Jackie, cuts back to him again. You get it, you live it up. And those are the moments where that's what I want out of a Rush Hour movie. I mm -hmm. just want to see these moments where you have guy who knows his shit, guy who doesn't know his shit, but they're still both, they, they have a common goal. Yeah. They always have a common goal. And Plenty of times in the movie, Carter is the guy who doesn't know his shit. Plenty of times in the movie, Lee is the guy who doesn't know his shit. They're constantly learning from each other. And the movie has a lot of heart because of all that. It has a lot of heart because of all that. For what it does wrong, it does wrong well. And what it does right, it does right really well. I would love, I would love, I think it's damn near impossible. But I, I don't know if they're going to, I think they might be doing a fourth one. I want them, I would love a completely rebooted franchise. I would love like a oh. high budget HBO franchise of this <laughs> where we can actually do something right with it, right? Yeah. Where you can take it from the, the new 20s era and be like, okay, well, if we have a movie with a black lead and an Asian lead, <laughs> why don't we cast an Asian director or a mixed race yeah. director who is both Asian and black and who can blend these two stories together? We can have an entire black cast on one side, an entire Asian cast on the other side, and Certainly. we can actually respect these cultures and learn a little bit about these cultures. I hope that people watching these, mov these movies and young filmmakers get to not be so hurt by the film, but be like, I can see the potential in in, in the storytelling of, of of what could be and what it did do. Atlanta, the TV show, 
more often than not, it's written by black people, starring black people. But uh, I forget his, I know his first name is Hero, but he directs most of that TV show and he's Asian. Yeah. So I think it's totally doable. I think we totally combine cultures even more so than on screen. I think we can definitely, a lot of like comedy comedians are definitely black and Asian communities combining together, especially for stand-up comedy. So I think it's totally doable to get to that point. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. There's there's so many avenues where they can take this franchise, and uh, I don't think it's dead. I don't think it's dead, and I think yeah. it, we will see it come back in one way or another in our future. But I mean, that's what I got. That's what I got for <laughs> you on here. I'm trying. Shout to out to Rush Hour. Two. I want to give one quick shout out to my favorite line. It's not even in the movie. It's the blooper reel at the end. Oh my! So they God. just kicked Ricky Tan out of the building, and then they look outside to see his dead body. And then Carter just looks at it and goes, damn, you know, he's not making it to Rush Hour 3. <laughs> it's so funny. The blooper reels are another moment that make this movie stand out for me. Yeah. The first one ends with, the, I think all of them, the credits have blooper reels. Yeah. Blooper reel, it feels like a fine wine. It feels mm-hmm. like an old, old thing. You see a blooper reel now, it's kind of like, what the fuck? Um, I got TikTok. <laughs> I don't need a blooper reel. Um <laughs> And they're so fucking funny. And you get to see, it's like these two actors definitely had a lot of fun on set. And you see that they are so responsible for the personas of these characters. No script could write these two people. They have a lot of heart for all of their follies. They have so much heart. And it's cool because, I mean, there are real people like that. I'm sure there's plenty of guys in the early 2000s who were just like Carter, who were very abhorrent with women. But, you know... They didn't know any better. And, and they're uh, hopefully I would like to think that a, a 2020 uh, Carter would have some apologizing to do <laughs> and would be able to do it in a way that would make you like him. I would hope he'd learn. Like, I think Chris uh, Tucker has got it in him. I think he, especially because he's had a big comeback in his career as well. So yeah, yeah. yeah. And I would love a uh, rush hour four where Chris Tucker's got a daughter and she's like old enough to be getting that sort of male attention. And he's like, oh ah. man what the fuck? And then Lee be like, uh, you talk like that to everyone, bro. And he'd be like, no, I don't. Not anymore. So really quick, I got, I looked up some research and we just have to talk about this because I think this is going to blow your mind. Howard, do you know that Rush Hour 1 is the reason why Rotten Tomatoes exists? No. Wow. So, <laughs> I'm not going to butcher his name, but the creator of the website was a huge Jackie Chan fan mm. and He's a big fan of the Hong Kong movies that Jackie Chan did, but he could never really find reviews of those movies. So when he found out that his next big movie was Rush Hour of Chris Tucker coming out the summer of 98, he started cranking on working on a website that would eventually become Rotten Tomatoes. So literally, without Rush Hour, we would not have Rotten Tomatoes, maybe. I'm dying to know the Rotten Tomatoes score of Rush (laughs) Hour now. I should look up the Rush Hour. Okay, Rush Hour Rotten Tomatoes. We'll do the first one, 1998. I was how old? Six, seven, eight. I was two. I had to count that out of my hand. So hold on. Rush Hour 2 right here, 52% on Rotten Tomatoes, right? That's rotten. <laughs> That's rotten, right? It's yeah. got like a little green thing. Over to the side of it, there's actually a couple of honorable mentions. Bad Boys, uh, 42%. Or Croft starring Joe Lee, uh, 20%. And uh, Volcano, 49%. A lot of movies from that era were definitely tanking. Wow, they turned back and they bit their creator, Russia. <laughs> Folks, if you want to read that, that's actually a really good article on Ryan Tomatoes' actual website by Ryan Fujitani. But he speaks on, 
he does like a review of Rush Hour and how it holds up, but also speaks on how it got made. Rotten Tomatoes, that is. So interesting. So fascinating. Awesome. So, Howard, would you like to give the audience one last little thing? Anything that you want to tell them about Rush Hour 2? I'll say this. Rush Hour 2, it's a fun time. I'm dying to know a lot of people's perspectives on the film. I would love to know people, uh, the Asian community's perspective on the film. I'd love to know more about what the black community thinks of the film because speaking for them, I'm enjoying it. (laughs) I'll say it, I enjoyed it. Uh, I think it is not without flaws. I think that it's a very interesting movie. I think it's such a fun, it was so fun to talk about it. And I'll I'll say this about the whole thing in general. It was a fun time and uh, I'll, I'll never forget what it gave me as a kid and it gave me a, a nice escape, a real nice escape and honestly a little bit of representation and I would, I would love to fill a, a Chris Tucker size role like that down the line and hopefully it age much better than that one. It's a great movie and it's my uncommon gem. I think if you haven't seen the Rush Hour franchise <laughs> as a whole, you got to see it for, for all the bad and good things we mentioned about yeah. it. It's kind of like towing the line of classic and uh, from a writer's perspective it is formulaic in every way possible there are tropes after tropes after tropes that you can just learn from and uh, digest and make your rush hour movie but make it better it's a lot of screenwriting books say do something that everybody wants to see but do it better if this movie can be anything it can be just a lesson for you on how to make a good movie how to make a good movie that follows a bunch of well-known beats how to do something original yeah, I think uh, I think it's it's definitely worth investigating. I would love to hear more about the negatives. Yeah, hit yeah. us up. We'll 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 let the people know, especially if you're in the Asian community. I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. I, I imagine imagine if it's nothing what we expect. I'm sure mm-hmm. it won't it won't be, but that's exciting and and definitely uh, comment below. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Howard. Folks, you can check out Howard on Twitter. He's oh that Howard. On Instagram, he's oh, that Howard Hendricks Powell. Please yeah. look him up. Go to his website. See what he's been in. He's done a lot of acting. He's done a lot of comedy. So definitely check him out. Also, check out the Coalition for the Homeless. Again, coalitionforthehomeless.org. We're going to post the link in the bio. So you can definitely check it out. Get involved and yeah. try and help out the homeless people as much as you can. You know, folks, it's, it's tough out here in this time. Check us out on Spotify and Apple and SoundCloud and YouTube. We're always coming back every Friday. Again, I'm so grateful for everyone for the love. We're going to keep it up. We're going to keep the podcast going. The Uncommon Gems are rocking, and I'm so happy that's going. Howard, any last words before we head on out? Just a big thank you for having me, Kevin. It's great. It was so nice to get to talk to you. I'm sure we'll do something fun soon, hopefully soon in person um, when when all this stuff passes. Thanks so much again. got a great podcast. This is awesome. And you got people talking, just hearing themselves talk about things they like. You can't miss. I hope there's some people out there who who, uh, get some enjoyment out of this. And thanks so much for having me. Oh, also follow me on Instagram. I'll follow you back. I'm not in a place where that's out of the realm for me. He gassed me up. I'm a layman like you. I'm a commoner. So feel free to uh, reach out, chat me up. Yeah. Whatever you need. Beautiful. Howard, thank you so much, man. Folks, hope you have a great rest of the day, night, wherever you may be. As always, take care. Bye. (laughs) Bye.